Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to World Christianity in New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global phenomenon and as an emerging field that examines Christianity's cross-cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations by paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the global South. Thank you for joining me today. Um, I'm very excited to share this interview with you all. I'm your host, Byung Ho Choi, from Princeton Theological Seminary. Global Christianity, a guide to the world's largest religion from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe, written by Gina Zerlo and published by Zondervan Academic in 2022, is an accessible, quick reference guide and an entryway to understanding contemporary trends in the world's largest religion. Filled with at-a-glance maps and charts, it puts relevant and up-to-date information into the hands of churches, mission organizations, and students and scholars interested in studying world Christianity. This very book addresses the various questions one might have about the reality we are currently living in, that Christianity is no longer a Western majority faith, that now most Christians today live in the global South, hence eliciting more questions and interest of how Christians outside of the United States live and practice their faith. Working with current demographic information from the United Nations and research from the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, this book is designed to be a vital and comprehensive resource for readers interested in in learning more about how Christianity has changed over the 20th century and continues to change today. Readers will be quite surprised um, to learn that Dr. Zerlo's work also touches upon issues such as the political conflicts, church-state relations, uh, issues regarding religious freedom, gender equality, education, health, economics, and climate change within the various countries. Now, over the course of our conversation today, we will take a closer look at this important work, how it sets out to make a significant contribution to how we understand world Christianity and how scholars and students of world Christianity stand to benefit from this book. To learn more about these issues and more, please stay tuned and we hope you enjoy the book and our conversation as well. Today, we are privileged um, to talk with uh, Gina Zerlo, the author of Global Christianity, a guide to the world's largest religion from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe. Gina Zerlo is the co-director of the Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and also a visiting research fellow at Boston University's Institute on Culture, Religion, and World Affairs. Dr. Zerlo is an interdisciplinary scholar crossing between history, sociology, and world Christianity with particular interest in women's experiences of Christianity and church life worldwide. At Gordon-Conwell, she teaches courses on world Christianity, uh, women in world Christianity, and American religious history. And she is the executive officer of the research, uh, Religious Research Association and an active member of the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion. Dr. Zello is also the co-editor of the World Christian Database by Bro and associate editor of the World Religion Database also by Bro. 
Back in 2019, she co-edited the third edition of the World Christian Encyclopedia, published by the Edinburgh University Press, uh, which covers the history and current status of Christianity in every country of the world, down to the denominational level. And to just highlight a few of her other publications, she has published articles in the Journal of World Christianity with the titles um, The Study of World Christianity, Past, Present, and Future, History, Theology, Social Sciences, and Beyond in 2019. And another article titled More Than Numbers, David B. Verrett and the 20th Century Historiography of World Christianity, which was published in uh, 2018. And in the Journal of the American Sociologist, the article titled The Social Gospel, Ecumenical Movement, and Christian Sociology, the Institute of Social and Religious Research. Dr. Zerlo has also contributed in chapters in several edited volumes, such as chapters titled Missions and Money, um, Christian Finance in Global Perspective, in the edited volume Missions and Money, uh, Global Realities and Challenges, published with um, William Carey Publishing in 2022, and another chapter titled Religions in Europe, a Statistical Summary, um, in the volume titled Oxford Handbook of Religion and Europe, published by the Oxford University Press in 2021. Dr. Zerlo was also named one of the BBC's 100 Most Influential and Inspiring Women of 2019 for her work in studying religious statistics and in particular, the female future of religion worldwide. So welcome, Dr. Zerlo, uh, to New Books in World Christianity. And thank you so much for taking the time today uh, to talk about your book. Thank you. It's great to be here today. Um, I would like to begin by saying uh, congratulations, Dr. Zerlo, for publishing uh, this excellent book. I believe that this book is just off the, hot off the press, and our listeners will be able to have access to this book right away. I also believe that this is your first, in a way, single-authored monograph. Am I, am I correct? Yes, that is correct. So I'm very excited <laughs> to have a chance to talk about it. Yeah. Um, once again, my sincere congratulations on this uh, great new book. Um, and today, I think it will be wonderful if we can start our conversation by getting to know more of you, Dr. Zerlo. So do you mind sharing with our listeners about your background, uh, where you grew up, uh, where you did your studies, and where you did your PhD, and how you became interested uh, in your field of study? And if I may just squeeze in just one more question here, um, please also feel free um, to mention who some of your influential mentors um, that have shaped your academic work as well. Sure. So a little bit about my background is I am fourth generation Italian-American from New York, and I'm first generation to go to higher education and first in my PhD, first in my family to receive a PhD. So this work is really meaningful to me on many levels, personally and professionally. Um, so I ended up doing my undergraduate, undergraduate degree actually in music education, which is not very well known, I think, among our peers. And then I ended up at Gordon-Conwell, where I did a Master of Arts in Religion, and then did my PhD at Boston University School of Theology. And I was always a global thinker. I was always interested in people of other religions, always interested in what was happening around the world, um, interested in political situations, probably somewhat unusual 
when I was in high school, being concerned about what's happening over there instead of where I was. Um, so I think I this kind of work naturally came to me in some kind of way. When I came to Gordon-Conwell, I encountered the work of Dr. Todd Johnson and the Center for the Study of Global Christianity. And I had never heard of it, of course. I had no idea what the quantitative study of religion was or the demography of religion or even world Christianity for that matter. I had never encountered any of that before. And in my first semester at Gordon-Conwell, Dr. Johnson came and gave a guest lecture in one of my courses. And it was what I know now to be just his standard spiel of the maps, charts, graphs, data of world Christianity. But I was utterly transfixed by this lecture. I had never seen anything like this before. And for me, it kind of tied together some of the things that had been interesting to me over the last several years. So even when I was in undergraduate doing music, I actually encountered social science approaches to music in the last year of my undergrad. And I was doing research in Jewish synagogues on liturgical music. And I remember going to my advisor and saying, I wasted my whole undergraduate career studying music when the thing I really should be doing is social science. And she said, don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. She said, I've met people who have uh, undergraduate, graduate, and PhD in three completely different fields, and they turn out okay. Well, that ended up being me. <laughs> so it was rather prophetic, I think, for her to give me that advice. So when, when I heard this lecture from Dr. Johnson, I thought, gosh, this is the thing. I really think this is the thing. So I went to his office and I said, can I work for you? And later he told me he looked at my CV and he said, you looked like everyone else with no experience in anything, pretty much. And so he said, I thought, sure, why not? <laughs> and then the rest is history, so to speak, because here I am 15 years later, um, now co-directing the center with Todd and really immersed in, in this kind of work. So I, I would say I, I came into the quantitative study of world Christianity rather by accident, of course. Um, but I, I think there were, there were little kind of nuggets along the way that led me in this direction. And so for the the question about influential mentors, clearly Todd Johnson has been my number one mentor. I've worked with him very closely over the last 15 years, and he has really poured so much into me for me to be able to take over this work and to move it to you know its next chapter. And it's really an honor to be a part of an almost 60-year-long research tradition, starting with David Barrett and Dr. Johnson worked with Barrett for 20 years, and I'm here working with Dr. Johnson for 15 years and still going. And it's it's really an honor to be a part of a research legacy that is so fundamental to the study of world Christianity. We are the research center that, quote unquote, discovered the shift of Christianity to the global south. David Barrett quantified that, and that has been the foundation of our discipline. So for me to be able to learn from Dr. Johnson all of the tricks of the trade, so to speak, and continue that is is a real joy because there's never a dull moment in world Christianity, for sure. 
Well, thank you for this chance um, to get to know you better and for that story. I think um, for those that are studying world Christianity, as you mentioned, I mean, it is, um, we always mention, we always highlight the fact that, you know, we look into world Christianity, how it Christianity has shifted the center, right? Um, and what we have understand from Western um, perspectives to into um, what we understand now, what world Christianity is, you know, um, understanding that a lot of Christianity is now focused focused on the global south and um, your work and I think the previous um, scholars that um, have led to this um, um, so much um, has has really helped us to um, situate our, our field right now and, and um, the contributions has been immense. So um, again, thank you for sharing that story um, and a chance to get to know you better. Um, sure. At this time, I would also like to invite you to tell us more about how you came to write this inc incredible work, uh, Global Christianity, a guide to the world's largest religion from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe. Um, how did this journey begin and you know what kind what led you to uh, writing this book and also thinking um, who were some of your intended readers uh, for your book? So the, the research of the Center for the Study of Global Christianity up until recently has been mostly hidden behind expensive reference works and subscription databases. And I think this has been one of the top critiques of our work is we love what you do, but we can't afford it. And we are extremely sympathetic to this critique, and we would love to be able to give everything away for free all the time, but it costs a lot of money to do research, to hire researchers, to travel, to talk to people. You know, it, it, you know it, it, it's an expensive endeavor, so we can't give everything away for free. But one of the things that I've been really interested in doing since taking on more leadership at the center is producing more popular level uh, resources for people. And so that initially took the form of doing uh, more newsletters, doing infographics, doing more mapping, putting all of that stuff on our website, doing more with social media to throw out graphs and charts and things like that. Um, so when Zondervan approached us about doing a popular level reference work, I said, absolutely, because we know for many years there's been a need and a desire for this kind of book, something that takes all of the credibility of what the Center for the Study of Global Christianity does, but puts it in an accessible, popular level, uh, colorful, attractive book, uh, paperback also, <laughs> that people, normal people, right? Not scholars, just regular people who are interested in what's happening around the world. So this book represents a, a, a many, many years long desire to take our work and put it in the hands of, of people around the world. So in that way, it really is intended for your average person, not even Christian, just person. Um, world Christianity discourse is growing, and I think people need to be more aware that Christianity is not a Western religion. It's a religion of the global South, and yet there's still this perception that it's just a Western colonial faith. And there's, of course, some of that still around, but we need to look at it for what it is completely. And I think this, book's, this book helps people start thinking in that direction through the language of data. Yeah. 
Um, thank you for that excellent answer. Um, and thank you for sharing with us, you know, in a way, what goes on beyond the four corners of your book um, and and the reason for uh, such a wonderful publication and, and for your special insight. Um, in taking closer look at the book itself, um, it does begin with two brief chapters, an introduction and a, also a chapter outlining the methodology and the sources um, you utilize in the book. Um, and the rest of the book is then divided into three distinct parts. Um, part one is titled Christianity by Continent, uh, which covers the six continents. Um, part two is Christianity by Tradition and Movement, uh, which is divided then into six uh, subsections, you know, um, Catholics, Independents, Orthodox, Protestants, Evangelicals, and Pentecostals and Charismatics. And part three um, is titled Christianity by Country, uh, where you cover uh, one by one the 234 countries in alphabetical order, again, from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe. Uh, we'll go in more details regarding the three parts as we proceed into the interview. But first, Dr. Zerlo, um, I was wondering if you could help provide some foundations and better understanding and approaching uh, this book. Um, in terms of methodology, um, do you mind talking more about um, quantifying a religious affiliation uh, for a project such as yours and how this book uses the term, you know, Christian and, and world Christianity uh, as well? Yes, and I'm really glad that you're asking this question because the number one thing that people ask is where do they get these numbers from? Who is a Christian? All these core questions, which is what people should ask. And one of the things I try to do in my teaching and writing is helping people to be intelligent consumers of quantitative data. Don't just take numbers for granted. And numbers don't just exist somewhere. Someone is making a lot of decisions along the way for those numbers to be those numbers. So it's always good to ask these behind the scenes methodology questions of how this came to be. So I think that's really good to always start with the method. Um, so, so the method of the CSGC is that we base our work on the social scientific principle of self-identification which is if you call yourself a member of a particular religious community, we count you as that. So we're making sociological descriptive statistics, not necessarily theological. So if you call yourself a Christian, you're a Christian, and I'm not going to call you anything other than that. <laughs> so, uh, and that goes for all the traditions. If you call yourself an evangelical, if you call yourself a Catholic, whether you, if you call yourself a Catholic, but you've never gone to mass, you've never taken communion, you didn't get married in the church, but you call yourself a Catholic, you're a Catholic. Um, I'm not going to make a theological value judgment on your faith. That's maybe the theologian's job. That's not my job. <laughs> um, so that's really important for people to know when they read this book, because you could open up, say, the Europe uh, section and say, there's no way there's that many Christians in Europe. Isn't Europe post-Christian and no one goes to church anymore and this and that? Yeah, but people still self-identify. They're still members of churches. So there is still something there uh, related to Christianity in terms of membership and affiliation. So that's what we're tracking. This is not a book about who prays on a regular basis or who goes to church every Sunday. It's about who calls themselves a Christian. So that's the most important thing. Now, in terms of the, the phrase world Christianity, if you've noticed, I use global Christianity and world Christianity interchangeably. And I do that purposefully throughout this book and throughout all of my work, because for us, 
the terminology doesn't really matter. And I know there's a debate out there in our field over this, but I don't want to be a part of that debate. <laughs> I just want to talk about what's happening. Um, so readers shouldn't get confused over if there's a difference between global or world Christianity. No, we're all talking about the same phenomenon. Um, so that's kind of where we stand on that issue. Well, thank you for um, clarifying um, this question, because it's very helpful for our listeners and future readers, you know, what they're getting themselves into in, in approaching your work. So thank you again uh, for that thorough and um, clarifying answer. Um, I think also, uh, Dr. Zerlo, our listeners and future readers will also be curious to know more about the sources you use for your work. I know you mentioned just briefly, but if you can speak more about um, the sources and the databases you draw from, I think our listeners and future readers will also be uh, um, um, very fascinated by that. Yes, because this is the number one question. Where do you get your numbers from? So that you have to talk about it. Um, we actually wrote a book about this called The World's Religions and Figures, but most people probably won't read the book about where you get your numbers, but they'll listen to me talk for five to seven minutes about where I get my numbers from. <laughs> so, uh, so the sources come from three primary areas. So the first is government censuses. Now, about half of the world's countries ask a religion question on their census. So that's relatively straightforward of just matching what they're asking, what people are writing in to what we report in the database, our database. Um, if the country does not ask a religion question, we can glean a lot of information from the ethnicity question, because we know in a lot of places around the world, religious affiliation and ethnicity are pretty closely intertwined. Now, that's not the true everywhere, of course, and there are problems with that. But, you know, if you have Somalis in Norway, Somalis are 99.9% .9 Muslim. So, you know, you're going to have Muslims in Norway if there are Somalis there. So we maintain a database of the world's peoples by religion. So we can track the movement of people to see where religion <clears throat> excuse me, is around the world. So we have government censuses. And then we have social scientific surveys and polls. And those are things like surveys from the Pew Research Center, from the Afrobarometer, from Conocet in Argentina. There's so many of these that are happening all the time. It's, it's a lot. But it's also heavily bent in the Western world. Not that many people are doing survey research in the Democratic Republic of the Congo or in Afghanistan or in places where it's really difficult to be a religious minority. So there's limitations to what we can use from survey research. And surveys also tend to be better about reporting beliefs and attitudes of religious and non-religious people as opposed to affiliation. But still, there's something we can glean from there. And then the third major source, which is the one we rely on pretty heavily that other demographers of religion don't, which is self-reporting from religious communities. And that's the David Barrett method, is to ask people, how big is your church? Because we believe religious people know how to count, and they have a sense of how big they are or whether their denomination is growing or declining. And in most cases, they have a better sense of that than the government does. So we collect data from all of these sources. And often, if you are lucky enough to get each of these sources for a particular group, they don't agree with each other. The government's going to have a very different idea over how many Anglicans there are in Australia versus the Anglican Church of Australia. Um, so our job is to go in and create essentially our best estimate. 
So we're taking in all the kinds of data that are possible and coming up with estimates that we think most closely fit the religious communities themselves. Um, so that's the process we use in every country. Now, for some countries, it's extremely difficult to find anything. So right, North Korea, China, Iran, Afghanistan, you really have to rely on on the ground knowledge in these kinds of places, especially where Christians are a persecuted minority. Government statistics are not going to be that helpful for you, even if they or they might not even exist altogether. And so that's why this on-the-ground approach that Barrett pioneered is so core to our methodology today. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jolo. I think this really helps um, our listeners and future readers in understanding where you um, obtain these data and how, um, in a way, um, these data is used and presented here in your work. So, again, thank you so much for clarifying this, and I think our listener will really appreciate that as well. Um, now, I would like to focus the second half of our interview and kind of digging deeper into um, the three sections, the three parts of your book. Um, and my next question, you know, pertains more on the first part titled uh, Christianity by Continent. Um, here in this section, you cover the trends in world Christianity by touching upon the six continents, Africa, Asia, Europe, Latin America, North America and Oceania. Um, it is indeed not an easy task in tackling um, continents as a whole. <laughs> but what I also appreciated about this part was the equal trip treatment you gave to each of the continents, you know, um, with every continent being, you know, two pages in length um, and how you provided some important facts and numbers, you know, and such as if I can highlight some of them is first an overview of each continent and some important facts, you know, one should know about the continent. Um, the second thing is the demographic data, you know, such as the population and the language they use. Um, and uh, the third one is the mention of specific Christian families uh, within each continent. I think that was also very helpful. And last but not least, um, important numbers one might be interested in, you know, such as how many Bible translations there are, the number of missionaries received and sent, and number of denominations and congregations as well. Um, these are just um, uh, some of the information. There's more, but I'm also curious to know, Dr. Zerlo, as the author and in putting this first part um, together, what were some of the noticeable trends um, that you noticed and what would like uh, what would you like to highlight uh, for our listeners uh, regarding this first part? Yeah, so the first thing I wanted to say was even though this book represents our attempt at a popular level, I even realized myself when I was opening it yesterday, it can be a little overwhelming when you open up to one of these two pages and you're just staring at all these numbers. And there are a lot of people in the world who say, ah, I'm bad at math. I, don't, I, can't, I can't do numbers. Um, so I want to encourage people that this book is not really designed to be read cover to cover. If you want to read it cover to cover, you're going to learn a lot. Um, it's going to be like drinking from a fire hose for sure. But it's really meant to be a reference work um, to say, hey, I heard that the Pope went to Ecuador. Like, what's up with that? Well, let me read the Catholic thing and see what what's going on in global Catholicism. Or let me read the Ecuador article and see, you know, what what is Christianity in Ecuador look like? It's meant for that kind of use. Or, oh, my church is going on a missions trip to Nicaragua. Let's read the Nicaragua article and see should we be going on a mission trip to Nicaragua or not? <laughs> 
Um, so I, I wanted to say that first. Um, and for all those people who think they're quote bad at math, this book is for you because you don't have to do math to appreciate it or know, know anything about quantitative studies. Um, but I think one of the in, in one of the intentional choices I made is actually I'm going to read from from page five, um, which is the World Christianity section. And the last bullet point on page five says this, and this is a really important piece of this book for me when it comes to what trends we're talking about. It says, Christianity around the world is just as much about theology and particular beliefs as it is history, culture, and politics. Many people choose to join or leave a church not only for theological reasons, but also for sociological reasons, race, class, family status, gender, ethnicity, and you could keep on going with that list, but I ran out of space. So <laughs> this is a really important piece of this book that I'm trying to communicate as a social scientist doing this work. And the reason for that is a lot of people think religion is just about what you believe. And that is a huge part of religion. What do you believe about God? How does that impact what you do in your daily life? You know, what is the quote, right or wrong reading of scripture? There's a lot of energy expended on the theological part of religion. But when you read this book, I purposely chose things to consider and topics to write about based on the broader context of religious belief and practice um, so that people can have maybe more understanding, more empathy, more sympathy for Christian experience around the world. Oh, why would people do X? Well, they live in a context that you have no idea that you could never, you would never experience in your life that makes them do X or think X or be a part of XYZ church. So to me, this, this is the, one of the core messages that I'm trying to, to give with this book is that context matters. That's probably the most important thing. So then when you look at what noticeable trends, you're going to see a lot of the trends I talk about are political trends. They're trends about gender violence. They're trends about the growth or decline of Christianity based on colonialism, uh, trends related to racism. And all of this has something to do with belief and practice, what a lot of people consider core. Um, so I hope that people pick up that theme as they read and start to just think a little more broadly about religion in the world. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for highlighting that aspect of, about that, uh, about the trends. And I think, yeah, um, our listeners and reader, future readers um, should focus on those specific themes and, and kind of approaching this book as well. Um, and in the second part um, titled Christianity by Tradition and Movement, um, you divide this part into six subsections by first highlighting the four major Christian traditions, you know, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, and Independence. And also you emphasize two Christian movements, the Evangelicals and Pentecostals uh, slash Charismatics. Um, for each of the Christian tradition and movement, we also see, you know, um, a general overview and some important facts to consider regarding the Christian traditions and movements. Uh, the top 10 countries with the highest number of that specific Christian tradition or movement, uh, along with how the number of the specific Christian tradition or movement grew or declined from 1900 to 2022. Uh, uh, sorry, 2020. Um Dr. Zolo, here I would like to ask you, in a way, a two-part question. And the first 
uh, question I want to ask is, in the first four, in the four major uh, Christian traditions you presented, um, I was wondering if you could talk more about how you classified uh, Christianity by traditions and provide our um, our listeners uh, with some more information on the fourth, uh, how you frame as the independence. Who falls under the category of, you know, being an independent Christian? And where have you found the majority of uh, independent Christians to be located at? Yes, this is a great question. And I will say, um, so when I showed this book to my parents, actually, uh, not people who know a whole lot about quantitative studies and real Christianity, my mom opened it up. And the first thing she asked was, what's an independent? <laughs> I thought, yes, yeah. yes, mom, that's the question. <laughs> uh, so, so let me explain our taxonomy. So in order to do any kind of counting, you have to have an organizational structure to count. And so this is our taxonomy of religion and Christianity. And this taxonomy has actually evolved over time since the, the time of David Barrett, who first started it. It's something that we consistently tweak. And over time, we've tried to simplify it quite a lot. So we ended up today with four major Christian traditions and these two movements. So the four major Christian traditions are Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, and Independents. Catholics, most people have probably heard of, right? All churches affiliated to the Pope in Rome in some way. <laughs> Protestants, churches that trace their lineage back to the Protestant Reformation, Orthodox, ancient Christian tradition, mostly tied to ethnicity in, in Eastern Europe, etc. Okay, then independence at the most basic level are Christians who do not self-identify as Catholic, Protestant, or Orthodox. And this might seem like a cop out, but it's not because <laughs> David Barrett, when he was doing his research in Africa, right? So he was a, a missionary in Kenya. He arrived in 1957 when African Christianity was growing by leaps and bounds and African-led movements were splitting away from the Western-founded churches. And so Barrett identified these AICs, African Independent Churches. So that's how the whole category of independent began was with the movement of African Christianity in the mid-20th century. So independents are churches who did just that, split off of another denomination. So if you are a Protestant denomination and a group splits off from that, you're an independent. You're making some kind of self-identification as separate from the, quote, home church. So that's one way you can be an independent. Another way a church can be an independent is if you just start on your own, completely separate from anything else. And we see that all the time. Charismatic leader emerges, he or she gains followers, and eventually you turn into a denomination, and that's that. Now you're you're just independent from everyone else. So so the independent category is a pretty broad umbrella, and it does contain a lot of different kinds of churches that wouldn't normally be put together if you're looking at it from a theological perspective. You also, in this category, have the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Jehovah's Witnesses, um, under the because they are independent. They started separate from any other group. So again, this is not a theological assessment. It's more of an ecclesial assessment for the independent category. And a lot of people think this category doesn't exist, but we're convinced that it does. Even just by the 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 presence of the OAIC, the Organization of African Independent Churches. Um, and we have close connections with the OAIC and they self-identify as independent. 
So we believe pretty firmly in this category, and I hope to convince people through this book <laughs> that it's a legitimate category also. Um, thank you for clarify, clarifying that. Um, and I think, it, yeah, a lot of people will find this interesting. And yeah, um, I think they'll, from that, um, try to investigate more about, you know, what other independent, you know, um, churches there are in this world. And I think this is a great start. Um, and I think you also explained this um, in a way uh, thoroughly in this um, section of the book. So our readers um, can um, read more about this as well. Now, the second part, of my two-part question is this. Um, it is regarding the two Christian movements, the evangelicals and the Pentecostal slash uh, charismatics. Now, um, in academia, uh, evangelicals or evangelicalism has been a hot word uh, being thrown out a lot. And in just world Christianity too, you know, Pentecostals charismatic has been uh, the, one of the uh, largest growing uh, commun- um, Christian, you know, churches or groups um, that has been growing. So I found this quite interesting. And I think our listeners would also be curious to learn more about how you define and categorize evangelicalism and Pentecostal slash charismatic Christianity. Um, so Dr. Zerlo, do you mind sharing with us about their distinction and why you decided to add these two uh, subcategories as well? Yes, I'm happy to talk about this, but I don't want to give a definition of evangelicals oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> because that is dangerous water these days. So, yes. um, so the adding Pente- Pentecostal charismatics and evangelicals, these two we consider movements within the four major Christian traditions. So the four traditions, Catholics, Orthodox, Protestants, Independents, are mutually exclusive. So you can't be both an independent and a and a Protestant or an Orthodox and a Catholic, right? Those are mutually exclusive. But evangelicals and Pentecostal charismatics are movements within the four major traditions. So you can be an evangelical Protestant. You can be an independent charismatic. You can be a Catholic charismatic. So you have any combination of these two things. So that's, that's why you cannot add up the four major traditions and the two movements together because that's way more than 2.5 billion Christians in the world. So there's overlap between these. Um, and the way that we count evangelicals and Pentecostal charismatics, they use a similar method. So in the World Christian Database, we have a list of every denomination in every country of the world. And every denomination is assigned a percent evangelical and a percent Pentecostal charismatic. And there's a few ways to get at these percentages. So if a denomination is a member of an evangelical council, such as the National Association of Evangelicals or the World Evangelical Alliance, they're immediately coded 100% evangelical. And same with the Pentecostals. So if your denomination is part, so like the Assemblies of God in Nigeria, if it's a part of you know the Pentecostal Assemblies of Nigeria or whatever it's called, then you're 100% Pentecostal. Now, for groups that aren't members, we have to assign a range or a percent evangelical or a percent Pentecostal. And that's the stickier piece of it, because you could ask three people what percent evangelical this group is in this country, and you'll get five answers. Right? <laughs> so, and, and actually, we've had this exact thing happen. We went to Brazil, and we were talking about evangelicals in Brazil, and we asked a whole group of Brazilian church leaders, XYZ group, from zero to 99%, how evangelical are they? And we got everything from zero to 99%. <laughs> uh, and that's just the nature of 
the fluidity of these movements, honestly. So we do our best to work with in-country contacts to work this out. Uh, and we're actually about to embark on a new method for counting evangelicals. So that's something that's coming uh, in the next couple years. Well, thank you for uh, clarifying that. Um, and I think our listeners will be uh, appreciate that as well as they dive into your work. Um, and kind of shifting our uh, focus to the last part of which the final and in a way the major part of this book, um, a total of 284 pages, is um, the part titled Christianity by Country, uh, where you cover 234 countries in alphabetical order, starting again from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe. Um, I appreciate how you clarify why some of the countries have more pages and contents than others. I wanted to uh, emphasize this so that there's no misunderstandings for our listeners. Um, if I may uh, quote from your book, first, um, countries with the largest Christian populations, so over 5 million to 67, um, around 67 countries are presented in two page spreads. Countries with medium-sized Christian populations, which is between 100,000 and 4.9 million, which is about 108 countries, occupy a single page. And countries with small Christian populations under 100,000, um, which is about 59 countries, are uh, closer to half a page. So um, directly quoting from your book, um, this is how you've, um, you know, organized this section of the uh, of your book. And some of the things that I wanted to personally highlight and commend about this section are, you know, first, how this book also covers the more newly formed nation, um, such as South Sudan, uh, Kosovo, Timor-Leste, and Montenegro. Um, and also how you highlight uh, Christianity's growth or decline by also comparing it to other, you know, religious traditions and touching upon, you know, Christianity's interactions with uh, the other religions, um, especially in nations where Christianity might be a minority. And um, lastly, how you also deal with issues beyond the religious, you know, such as important historical, economic, social and political factors that is worth noting about that specific country. So my question regarding this final part is also in a way somewhat like a two-part question. But Dr. Zerlo, I'm very curious to know what your experience was like in a way collating and organizing the information and data for each country because 234 countries is a lot. Um, were there any specific nations that kind of stood, stood out to you um, in your experience and in presenting each country in your book were there any other information that you wish you could have further elaborated on, or maybe you wish to clarify on why you chose uh, to highlight certain informations? You know, what I found, for example, what I found was very unique was the gender gap um, that you, uh, I think, purposefully added in, into these sections. But yeah, please, uh, Dr. Zerlo. So thank you for reading the part about the size of the pages <laughs> related to each country. We're not trying to make a statement that any country is less important than another. Uh, and I actually had a friend pick the book up and, and was flipping through trying to find Morocco. But, you know, Morocco has a very small Christian population, so it's only half a page. And she said, what, there's no Morocco in your book? And I said, no, there is. Every every country has something. It's just tiny. Um, so then that's just, you know, logistical decisions you have to make. Or else you'll end up with a thousand page book, which is what the World Christian Encyclopedia is. <laughs> so we're trying to not do that for a popular level book. 
but the collating and organizing, so this book is somewhat of a product of the World Christian Encyclopedia. This was only able to be done because we do the large scale work of the encyclopedia. And in producing the encyclopedia, we reach out to people all around the world. Um, I literally sent an email to someone in every single country of the world. Uh, I don't know how many people have emailed someone in the Faroe Islands. Maybe not that many, but I have translated into Faroese through Google Translate. I mean, this is what we're doing here. Um, and the benefit of that is that you get you get a lot of feedback. You get good feedback of what you're doing right, and you get feedback of what you're doing wrong and what you could be doing better. You get feedback of what's confusing, what could be clearer. And um, that's the that's the hard work of researching every single country of the world is it's the hard work, but it's also the joy of it. I mean, the fact that I get to see world Christianity from this on the ground perspective is such a unique thing in our field. Um, so we really rely on this global network of hundreds and hundreds of people who have reviewed spreadsheets of data, who have helped us with really hard countries where there's no official statistics, who've read articles, provided feedback, who wrote things. I mean, lots of people have touched everything in this book along the way before I came and kind of shaped it into what it is. Um, so that's that's really it's really a product of world Christianity in some way. That sounds a little cliche, but we, we try to make our work as representative as possible. It's not just a bunch of people in Boston telling everyone else what to think about the world. <laughs> we, we, really, we really are trying to bring the world into our work as, as much as we can. Um, but in terms of specific nations, there's, there's a lot of tragedy in world Christianity. And when you write about the political situation, the gender violence situation, the conflicts that impact religious belief and practice, you just run into tragedy after tragedy. And and some countries are really, really hard to write. Um, one line that always stands out to me here is from the Syria article. And it said, I'm going to read, I'm going to read the, the bullet point. It says, um, it says Christians under the control of ISIS had four options, convert to Islam, pay the jizya tax and accept Dimi status, leave the country or die. And when I wrote it, I thought, do I leave this like this? So stark. And I thought, yeah, we do. We, we should leave it this stark because that is the starkness of the situation. And people in the West or in the United States who have all kinds of opinions about what happened in Syria, do they realize that was what happened for Christians in Syria? And could you imagine yourself being in a scenario like that, where it's life or death, whether you stay a Christian or leave or die? Or I mean, that's just a scenario outside of the realm of possibility for so many of us, especially in the West. We'll never face that. Um, and yet this unbelievable situation was was the case here. So I'm trying to bring those stories out here. Um, and, and another one that really stuck out to me was the United States. So, of course, the United States, I know quite a lot about being American. I have lots of opinions about Christianity in the United States. Uh, and so trying to figure out the fact versus opinion piece of it, just trying to stick with the data. What do the data say? And fortunately, there is no end of data about Christianity in the United States. It's just every day there's something else. And, and I made a purposeful choice to include this bullet point, which I'll read. 
It says, gun violence is endemic with an estimated 300 million guns on the streets, far more than any country. Research has found that between 39 and 65% of white evangelicals own and regularly carry guns, even in church. And, and what I tried to do in each of these country entries was write about what's unique about Christianity. This is a very unique thing about American Christianity, that there are more guns than people in this country, and pastors are packing heat on Sunday morning. I mean, you, you tell this to a Christian anywhere else in the world, and they're like, what is going on in America? It's not safe. So if we can write about all the political turmoil happening elsewhere in the world and things that Christians might do that you don't like or whatever it is, you have to be introspective and do the same thing for the USA. So some people might look at the USA, things to consider that I chose and think, wow, she's got some strong opinions about what's happening in the USA, but which I do, but there's research behind all of this, you know, and I, I made purposeful choices to include the things that make American Christianity unique. And this gun violence thing is definitely among the top. There's, there's nothing else like this in world Christianity. So I think you know, the, the question of why I chose to highlight certain things that I did, I can talk about theological trends and other people can do that too. Lots of people talk about theological trends and that's fine. But I, I wanted to, to talk about these social trends that really make you stop and think about what life is like for Christians in other places around the world. So I, I'm glad that you brought up the, the gender gap thing. So the inclusion of gender is very recent in the work of the Center for the Study of Global Christianity. So the first edition of the encyclopedia and the second edition, there, which was 1982 and 2001, you would read these historical articles and think that there were no women involved at all in the spread of Christianity around the world <laughs> over time. But anyone in world Christianity historical studies know that world Christianity spread on the backs of women, right? that we have unnamed Bible women in Southeast Asia who were carrying the gospel to their neighbors and friends, and that women had a massive contribution to make. And so when I came along as a young female researcher, I thought, surely we could do this better. Surely there must be a way to include women. If we're going to be doing demographic quantitative studies, and we're missing the very basic variable of gender, aren't we missing a piece of the story? And, and I, I wrote about this in my work on David Barrett about why he overlooked the gender variable. Um, and I don't think it's as simple as, well, it was just men researching and I'm the first woman to do it. But I do think that's a part of it. Um, I, I think different people bring different perspectives to the work. So I made um, gender now a core part of the research of the Center for the Study of Global Christianity. We will include gender data in every single country from now on. Uh, I just finished a Women in World Christianity project on this subject. And even in, you know, just the quote, general world Christianity surveys we do, you're going to see gender in it now because it's such an important fact of life and life around the world is gendered. Christian life is gendered. Men and women experience Christianity differently. Um, so one last thing I'll say ab about that is the emphasis I tried to place on gender-based violence around the world. Um, and so 
I included in the things to consider where possible any kind of mention that was really quite shocking. Honestly, to, to shock readers to realize, wait a minute, Christianity is now a majority global South religion. And yet women in these predominantly Christian countries are experiencing unprecedented rates of gender-based violence. What is going on in Christianity in this place that you can have something, have a country be so highly Christian and yet their women be so treat, treated so poorly? These two things shouldn't go together. And yet for a lot of women in the global South, they do. So it's like the arrival and growth of Christianity didn't even help women at all for basic safety. There is not a single place in the world, the Western countries included, where women have complete physical safety. That's something that world Christianity should be addressing. That's something that churches should be addressing. Um, so these little statistics here and there of the percent of women that have experienced some kind of violence, uh, like in Fiji, 75% of women have experienced some kind of physical, emotional, or sexual violence in their lives. And Fiji's 65% Christian. So the church has to say something and do something about this. And they are in a lot of places. Um, but I wanted to make sure that this issue doesn't end up on the back burner, that this is a core safety issue for women <laughs> around the world. Um, so so that's why I, I make these choices is to not just have knowledge for knowledge sakes, but knowledge to do something, knowledge for Christians to, to be better and do better and do really good work in the world. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Jalou, for that um, thorough explanation and really helps us to put into perspective some of the things that we have might have overlooked um, as um, readers or scholars or students. And I think um, this will further elicit more interest and further research and more change uh, in the world as well. So thank you for that. Um, as we head towards um, the end of our interview, there are two questions um, I would like to ask you, and that is, what do you hope um, students and scholars working on world Christianity uh, or global Christianity will take from your book? And what new avenues for research would you say your book uh, kind of leads to? Yeah, I'm really interested in the connection between world Christianity and broader global trends. I think world Christianity scholars are really good at being specialists in certain places, right? We have amazing works about Christianity in Sub-Saharan Africa and Catholicism in Latin America and really, truly amazing work. And even the interdisciplinary piece of it, that Christianity in one place impacts Christianity in another. It's fabulous. I like to take a bigger, broader perspective and think about world Christianity and gender-based violence. World Christianity and the climate crisis, world Christianity and ecumenism, world Christianity and fill in the and gun violence, right? <laughs> Whatever the issue is. I, I like this more like topical approach. Um, and then let's see around the world how, how Christians are, how the acts of Christians in one place impact another as it relates to the climate crisis. Very clear connection there of what Christians do in the Western world is directly impacting Christians in the Pacific Islands, right? That kind of thing. Or what Christ, how Christians combat gender-based violence here might have a direct connection to how you know, it's happening here. Um, so I'm really interested in this topical approach that I hope this book will kind of lead students and other people to maybe think a little bit more about. Well, thank you, um, Dr. Zerlo, for that 
answer, and I think it will for hopefully, um, you know, students and scholars of world Christianity also um, utilize this book as a great resource, and not only scholars and students, but also um, individuals, um, also uh, those that are um, within uh, church organizations or um, interested in missions can also use this book uh, for various purposes as well. And again, Dr. Zerlo, thank you so much for your time today to discuss your book. Um, one final question um, that I like to ask all my guests, and that is, um, do you mind sharing with us about your current and future projects and you know, what you hope to work on uh, as well? Yeah, um, I, have a, I have two books coming out in the next few months. One is called From Nairobi to the World, David B. Barrett and the Reimagining of World Christianity. And that book is about placing David Barrett more firmly in the historiography of world Christianity as one of the, quote, founders of the field. So kind of raising his profile and the role of quantification in our whole understanding of what world Christianity is. So I'm hoping maybe that'll get a little bit of traction. If not, we'll see. <laughs> and then the, the second book is Women in World Christianity, Building and Sustaining a Global Movement. So that book is the direct result of the Women in World Christianity Project. And it's a textbook designed to be used in world Christianity courses that takes continental, ecclesial, and topical perspectives on what life is like for women and what their contributions have been to the faith. Um, but the, the, the big project that I'm slowly building towards is a World Christianity in the Climate Crisis project. I'd really like to see us tackle this in a way that gives us more data about how Christians are handling the climate crisis and maybe some practical pieces for you know how, how, how Christians can respond better. So that's a little bit of what, what's going on now. Sounds great. Wow, Dr. Rullo, thank you um, for sharing that. And those indeed sound like great projects. And I look forward to reading more of your works as well. And once again, thank you so much for um, taking the time today to be on my podcast. So thank you. Thank you. It's an honor. Um, and thank you, everyone, so much uh, for listening to today's episode in which we explored global Christianity, or a guide to the world's largest religion from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe, written by Gina Zerlo and published by Zondervan Academic in 2022. This is your host, Pyongho Choi, and stay tuned for the next episode on the new books on world Christianity. <laughs>